Laura, can you there? Yep, I'm there here. Awesome. Nice. Well, <laughs> what is it? It's all there in here. Where am I? Where am I? Um, so, Adam, do you listen to Heavyweight with Jonathan Goldstein? No, I don't. The, this is, do you listen to podcasts much? I'm not sure how it would. Do you? Not much. Not much. Uh, I listened to the, the Enron one recently and the Elizabeth Holmes one before that, but not that much. So I, you know, I, I, I guess I listen to like doing dishes or driving the kids around or whatever. But so heavyweight with Jonathan Goldstein, Gimwit podcast, outstanding podcast where he goes to people and kind of solves uh, problems that they have had d- deep in their past. You know, often a reconciliation with someone from their past. It's very, very good, very well done. But the, every the episode of Heavyweight starts with him calling his friend Jackie. Um, and Jackie usually hanging up on him. Um, and I, listening to all of the, I thank you so much for uploading all of the past Twitter spaces into to Spotify to, to the to syndicating them as a podcast. Oh yeah. So I've been listening to a bunch of them, just kind of like as I've been driving around, and I realized that we have our own like Jackie. We start every episode complaining about Twitter spaces. Basically, that's how <laughs> more or less. I mean, complaining is actually overly that, that. I mean, we actually should give ourselves a hard time because we are more observing things that are busted about Twitter space. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering where this where this was the going. Like, journey was going. Uh, yeah, that's where we are. I, I, I don't know if you noticed listening. I, I, I was reminded of my own in joke listening back to some of the now that it's in podcast form um, that I went through about 10 episodes in a row where I cut it to start with you saying, all right. <laughs> and there are about 10 episodes that if you if you advance through them quickly, you just get Brian saying, all right, as the as the first word. Now, this is, this is not our dedicated listeners should know, your first act of editing prowess. Uh, okay, tell me more. I, I feel the, it's Pat Gelsinger and Andy Jastic, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The, uh, the Pat Gelsinger, uh, Andy Jassy supercut uh, of them disagreeing on whether it's on premises or on premise. But they're not actually disagreeing with it. Just one says it one way, the other says it the other way. That's right. Back, back and forth. Yes. I thought you might have meant uh, I did one cleanup episode in this show, and I won't mention which one, and then a different cleanup <laughs> where I added you saying, Happy Valentine's Day, Bridget. <laughs> yes. But the but the edit was so clean that I, I think that it it may not be observable. I will I will pass that on to her. But she will be she will immediately <laughs> smell a rat. Although actually as recently as this morning though, you are actually sending the three of us like embarrassing photos from our shared past. So I I don't know if it's gonna, gonna see through that one. Um, there we go. So, but that we, um, Laura is here. Laura, we thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, and Laura, I was trying to remember, because I feel like we talked about the first vulnerability here, but then I realized that the dates don't quite line up because. I thought we did, or at least I, I definitely remember talking about it. Yeah, somewhere. right. I think so too. I don't know where we did. We did, I think at some point, but I think we started doing the Twitter space kind of after you had the big disclosure a year ago. So to be clear, we are talking about another LPC 55 vulnerability. Although for people who follow the company closely, we're not talking about another, another LPC 55 vulnerability. It did occur to me that I, wait a minute, did Laura find another vulnerability since like a week and a half ago? Um, the answer to that is not yet. Um, but Laura, I wondered if you wanted to maybe 
start with um, some a little bit just a backstory of the vulnerability you found in now December of 2020 is the is when you found the first vulnerability, right? Right. So um, uh, backing up a little bit, a little bit when we talk about the LPC 55, this is a chip from NXP that we selected to use for our hardware root of trust um, as part of Oxide's shtick about building a new server is that we want to be able to have this hardware root of trust to be able to measure what's on the system. And uh, after doing a lot of deliberation, we decided the LBC55 was um, the best uh, choice out there. And then we started the process of trying to um, bring up the ship. And while, you know, it's certainly easy to be able to like get initial code running on it, trying to do some of the more advanced features uh, that we actually want to be able to use from it, you know, proving to be kind of difficult to use and also sometimes um, partially related to, you know, struggling with some of the documentation. And uh, I went through a series of problems trying to get this going, which resulted in me breaking a whole bunch of chips. And uh, I actually, um, when I visited, when the, uh, I, I visited uh, the office a, a few weeks ago, um, Rick actually gave me a stack of those uh, chips I uh, bricked. So they're sitting on my desk right now. I need to do some sort of art project with them to, to commemorate those. Um, I think you need to like adorn an actual physical brick with them because I mean there was a stack. I feel like there were like five or six. Yeah, and- there were quite another of them. I, I kind of want to put them in resin or epoxy or something, but... Um, and so you should explain to folks, like, how it was possible, like, the, the level of software you were developing and why it was even possible. What we mean by, by breaking the chip, first of all. Yeah, so, I mean... So, okay, okay. backing up a little bit more is, is that um, I used to be a kernel maintainer, and sometimes one thing I would always tell people is, is that, you know, it's generally okay to experiment with your kernel because it's pretty hard to actually script your, your system, assuming you're, you know trying things pretty carefully. I mean, sort of like putting random failures in your file system, there's a pretty good chance that if you try and do a kernel and it panics, you know, it turns out, you know, panics for the most part are recoverable. But for what we're doing with these uh, LPC-55 microcontrollers, uh, they have some settings that are designed to be um, programmed. And it turns out because uh, what it is is that when the chip boots up, it goes through, through the boot ROM. And which is where I eventually found the vulnerability and I'll get to. But as part of um, going through the boot ROM, we'll check various settings. And it turned out that there are, it's possible to get those settings uh, incorrect. And as a result, have the chip not be able to boot up and not be able to fix it in a meaningful way. Yeah. So when we say bricked, I mean, we mean like it's lost at seed. It's basically, as far as we are aware, no way to recover those things. Yeah. So, I mean, I ended up with this, a stack of stuff right there. And then... I think it was actually um, one one of my uh, coworkers, Cliff, had actually got the idea, you know, hey, we could read out the ROM because um, NXP hadn't, like, read protected it, like, unlike, you know, other uh, chips out there. So what if we just started to disassemble it to try and see what was going on? So he pointed me to that, and I ended up picking that up and, you know, going to try and take a look at it a little bit closer just so if I can try to identify code paths where exactly I might have screwed things up. And, you know, I did eventually find some places where I think I screwed things up. But as I started taking things a little bit closer, closer um i it was actually uh very interesting to try and figure out what this thing was doing and i spent a lot of time cross tre- cross uh, checking the um addresses that were being referenced with uh, the, those against the manuals and i found this one uh set of addresses that were not actually mentioned in the manual but they were definitely within the hardware space and then i ended up cross checking that against a spreadsheet um that uh <laughs> yeah so, so it, i, I you should describe the spreadsheet because the spreadsheet was a surprise. It was a total surprise to me. I mean, maybe it wasn't a surprise to you. 
Yeah, I, I mean, okay, so it was one of these things we don't just looking at a little bit more closely. But um, so we had this spreadsheet and it eventually referenced this region called Rompatcher. And I was able to cross check where these this um, uh, part of the flash was was being accessed. And I was um, able to put that two and two together and using exactly what the seeing what the code was doing in the ROM and looking at the assembly, I was able to get a good idea about what this Rompatcher was doing. So that was really cool. Uh, then, of course, you know, I got, you know, the brain cells connecting and decided, okay, what else can we do with this? I mean, is that I, I, the first thought when you see something like a ROM patch, you must assume, okay, you know, th there's there's a good reason to have um, a ROM patch. I mean, I, I think that should be emphasized that, like, the, the thing about a ROM is that, of course, if, if it's true mask ROM, you can't change it. But if there's bugs in your ROM, you're going to need some way to fix that. And so that's the idea of what this ROM patch is supposed to do. So there are good reasons you you want this. But the catches and where we ran into the problems was that, was that it was possible to modify uh, the ROM um, patches uh, after boot up. So what it is, is is that we discovered that it was possible to do this and it allowed you to potentially violate various security boundaries, both in the um, privilege, non-privilege -pri area. And uh, more importantly, I think for um, our eventual purposes was violating the boundaries between trust zone. Well, yeah. And so a couple of inter really interesting points that I just want to go back and emphasize. One, and I, I don't know if I quite realized this kind of the origin story of the origin stories of going in to disassemble the ROM because to make up for the lack of documentation. So that some documentation, but like I found some of it kind of confusing and hard to follow. And I mean, I, I really see this as an example of about, I know I have a lot of respect for documentation writers and I think they are certainly doing their very best. But I mean, I, I, I see, see this as an example of, of a company that is, you know, not chosen to put documentation at the forefront of their strategy, for example. That is definitely true. And then the spreadsheet, as I recall, was contained in the PDF. Yes, right? it was attached to a PDF, which I had never seen before. And I, I, I actually realized you could do that. Yeah, I did not realize you could do that either. I'm like, what? Can you just have like, and then of course, people who know PDFs well are like, oh my God, you've got no, it's like a virtual machine. You can have it. It's not a, P, it's not a document. It's a program, but you're running on your computer. You're like, okay. Um, so that was, it was definitely eye opening. And then, so you, you're getting into the, the, the flash patcher, discovering that like, the ROM patcher, which I think you did a very good job of articulating why these things need to exist. That actually, it, it's when you're developing software that is going, that you, it, is immutable. Uh, it's a little scary, and you have to have some way of kind of, of of fixing defects, certainly. So then, but Laura, I think it's also worth emphasizing that NXP made, I would say, a classic error in that as you were disclosing to them the fact that this thing was not locked down, it was had not been secured. There's kind of a sense where they were challenging you to escalate the privilege. There's kind of, they, they they kind of minimized it, honestly. I mean, I I think. We were definitely not happy with the way that uh, escalation w ended up happening. I think just simply because, I, I, I think especially from our perspective, there was, um, I, I think Rick referred to it as a lack of creativity involved about what we were trying to do. You know, I gave a, a proof of concept about what it can do and they kind of came back and said, okay, maybe you can do something with this as opposed to, but they took it at, at face value as opposed to trying to think through all the implications about what you could actually do with this. And then I think that was at that point, I think it was really Rick went back and, you know, came up with the idea about demonstrating this using, using their own um, trusted firmware. And then uh, we engaged in, I think, a, a game of um, assembly code golf to figure out exactly how we could get a proof of concept in, um, uh, in, in a useful way. And that they were more receptive to. 
I think yeah. uh, um, they were still, I, I think we were a little bit dismayed about that, that what we felt was an unnecessary delay in the process. I also feel, Laura, I don't, Laura, I don't know what your take is on this, but I feel like, I feel the work that, you know, the work that you were doing is so intensely creative in terms of understanding how you can basically take this thing out of its design center. Challenging the creativity of someone so creative, it just, that, is, that is not a path to success, I think. I do not think that's dangerous. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think this, this is ultimately um, comes down to thinking about threat modeling. And I mean, I, I'm grateful for colleagues like Rick, Rick, who have, you know, really taught me all about how to how to approach problems like this and, you know, think about exactly what problems are you solving when you're trying to do things like this? And can you, can you imagine, and, you know, just come up with all the different ways that uh, you can come up with, with, with problems like this. So I think, um, yeah, I think we, we've definitely learned how to be uh, very creative in our approaches for things. And then, so with this vulnerability, uh, we, there is a CVE. I was shocked. Laura, I don't know if you were shocked by that. I was floored to learn that NXP's disposition to CVEs was that it was basically an opt-in system and they didn't feel like opting in. And I had never, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, that was definitely never my, I, I thought that CVEs, I mean, clearly it's not like there's not regulatory compliance issues, but I thought everyone had the attitude of like, no, this is, these are common, this is a common vulnerability database and everybody needs to share this for the good of the industry. I don't know, Laura, were you surprised at all by their disposition on that? Um, I was a little bit of surprised, but I would also say you could probably do an entire episode talking about like CVE security processes just because I, I think it's important to remember is, is that when we think about what is the purpose of, of CVEs in terms of trying to get things out there. I mean, I, I, I think CVE was the CVE um, discussion was more of an, an example of a, the bigger picture problem, which is a, a lack of transparency in terms of actually getting this information out there. I yeah. mean, I, all, all of its flaws, the, the CVE process is a great way to be able to get that information actually out there. Yeah, I, I had the same reaction to you, Brian, which I, I didn't think it was an, uh, sort of optional. People could say, shrug and say, eh, not us. And I almost see it as, as a way of sort of burying some of these details in that it's such a, you know, because everyone uses it, it's like um, it's sort of hidden within other disclosures. Um, but I guess they didn't view it that way. And I like I can understand where they're coming from. I mean, it's like it doesn't feel good to have a vulnerability in something that you've really tried hard on, having been there. Um, and I I get that kind of that temptation. I guess it's so that you have to be you have to, to listen to the better angels of your nature for sure on that. And it's kind of unfortunate they didn't. And especially for a part like this, right? Like especially yeah. for a part like this where, uh, I mean, may, may, maybe it cuts both ways on this, but one where. You know, tr trust and security are are part of the part of the. Uh, you're, they're on the tin. Well, and I don't know, and maybe I, I I guess I don't do this anymore. But I would look at the CVEs to get a sense for what has been discovered in a part. And if you look at NXP, they're like, oh, there have been four CVEs in the history of NXP. Like, wow, that's amazing. It's like, well, actually, it's not that amazing as it turns out because they have vulnerabilities, just not disclosing them. So that was, and then, Laura, you remember them saying like, well, we can create a C, like, if you want, we can create a CBE. Like, yes, we want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, th I think this is also a case, though, of about, um, and when we talk about the weaknesses of CBEs, CBEs are very software focused. And so when we're dealing with a hardware company, it's one of these things that it's like, okay, what exactly does the, does a, you know, 
CVE for hardware actually mean? I think when we go back to, you know, everyone's favorite Spectre and Meltdown, this is another case where, especially in terms of trying to do this, the concept of signing CVEs for Spectre and Meltdown didn't always make a lot of sense because it wasn't tra- tracking things in a useful manner. So I can sort of see exactly hmm. how a hardware yeah. company may not approach things um, in a different manner. But again, I, I, I think this is... A, Going back to, to you know my previous point, like uh, this is more just related to lack of transparency. I mean, if they didn't want to do CVEs in their particular manner, maybe that would be okay. Is that if they had other ways of making sure they can get things out there? That's right. And so on that, so during this whole process, one of the things that we were asking them for, I mean, just to your to your point, Laura, we've been asking them for more transparency for everybody, for their customers, and in particular, we were asking them to, and still would ask them, and would ask all vendors to make the the source code to the boot ROM available so we can see it. That way, Laura doesn't have to go reverse engineer it to figure out how to use this thing. And we think it'd be very beneficial for the source code to be out there. And uh, NXP does not agree. Um, and so they, they told us, under NDA, they told us, uh, their, and I'm going to read their quote. Or Laura, do you want to read their quote? Or I, I don't want to take, take away any out loud reading from you. If you I don't... Andy with me, so if you want to do a, a dramatic reading, you know, if, 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 I if, you want, if you want to violate the NDA, knock yourself out, boss. Well, no, I, I that's right. Oh, damn it! I thought I was getting some fingers on the revolver. No, no, no. Okay, I'll explain that in a second. So, yeah, they, they shared this to us under NDA. Um, they say, uh, even though we are not believers of security by obscurity, keeping the interest of our wide customer base, the the product specific ROM code is not open to external parties except the NXP approved common criteria certified test labs for vulnerability reviews. And so like, even though like you just explained security through, like you're not, like, even though we are not believers in security by, by obscurity, we believe in security by obscurity. So we asked them, can we, okay, fine. You're not going to release the boot ROM. This statement, can we issue this statement publicly? And they released us from our NDA for that statement. So there you go, Adam. There you go. All right. Good. So I, they don't see, I mean, like, we kind of think this is like, well, we're, you're kind of showing your bare ass here, but okay, fine. That's, a, you know what? There you go. Um, so, and then Laura wrote a terrific blog entry on this. This is, again, this is a year a plus ago. So uh, Laura, when did that blog entry come out? They came out, yeah, God, it was, yeah, almost a year ago, 11 months ago. And then, and Laura, what was the, the kind of the reaction to that? Um, was that, I mean, I, was this the first, is this the first big vulnerability that you've discovered? I mean, what would kind of walk us through what, what it was like to, uh, to discover this and, the, and then to get it out there publicly? Um, I mean, it, it was, you know, kind of pretty intense to, to be able to actually get it out there. I had done some sort of informal, mostly bug hunting, never anything that was, uh, ro- ro- rose to uh, this type of level before. And then it should be said that you, uh, you ended up doing, you and Rick did a DEF CON talk. Yes. Um, which was terrific. Uh, we can link the, the, the video. That was, uh, and that was, were you, how did you feel? Because DEF CON was not in person. Did you miss doing the in-person thing? Or I personally would be, I'm so scared to take an electronic device to DEF CON. Yeah, I'm still uh, disappointed that uh, it was not actually feasible to try and go um, in person. I had been to DEF CON once uh, well over 10 years ago, um, and it was, a, it was a good time. And I mean, I'd love the chance to maybe get a chance to, to go again. But um, I, I did get, you know, the speaker badge and everything. So Okay, that's pretty cool. But so, okay, so you, but you, you still feel like you've got some unsettled business in that 
you know, due to the pandemic, we couldn't be there in person. I would have liked them to be there in person. Um, so then I think we fast forward to, to December. We're continuing to build our product and walk us through how you found, found this vulnerability. So, um, okay. So even after I found the vulnerability in this room, I sort of continued to try and poke at other various parts of the ROM that were there, uh, mostly because like, you know, we talk about creativity. It was also like a problem that was sort of sitting there, you know, staring me in the face. Like, I want to try and figure this out. I mean, just because what exactly all the parts of this, this that actually did. And I mean, I, you know, I eventually was kept trying to convince myself that this was actually good for the product. So, you know, I, I think one of the areas I started to look at was the um, in-system programming ISP mode, which is uh, designed to be able to... Um, uh, program things in a secure manner. And, and one of the features of this ISP mode is to be able to take a signed update image um, to be able to apply that when the chip is in a fully locked down secure mode. And I, th there's, a, there's documentation out there for the format itself, but as far as you know, what the ROM was actually doing was processing, I was curious exactly how this thing um, actually was. And you know, I, I will admit, I kind of had a motivation of looking at this because I didn't actually want to sit down and write our own processor. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I really kind of got curious about exactly how well uh, things were bounds checked in terms of um, parts of this format, just because it's a, it's a fairly complicated format. And again, I'd like to say, if, if you think about the higher level problem about what this is trying to solve, like a lot of it actually, how you get a format like this actually does make a lot of sense is that uh, microcontrollers are very memory constrained. And so the, the way this format is designed, it's broken up into 16 byte chunks. So the idea is that you don't have to have a lot of memory required to be able to um, stage the update and uh, things need to be encrypted because, okay, fine, you can do that. It's sort of that if you think about the firmware update problem and you follow the logical conclusion, I can easily see how you get something like this. And this is the SB2 format. Correct. Correct. And you had asked on Twitter, I don't know, did you get an answer? What is the history of this format? Because it's just kind of like, where does it come from? So I, I asked on this because I, I was looking around at this just because I'm really curious about it, just because I, I think as far back as it reference, it seemed to come out of Sigmatel, which to the best of my knowledge seemed to be a company that was involved in making uh, audio chips. And if you you can see the parts of this that are referenced in the format itself, just because it uses a couple of magic numbers like SGTL, which I think is short for Sigmatel, and SMTP, which is... Um, uh, the uh, name of one of the chips. So I think this format has existed. Huh. It's, it's also interesting to look at this as, as you know, how, how exactly this got to, to NXP. And I think the answer is, is that Sigmatel was acquired by Freescale and then Freescale acquired by NXP. This is, how we this is awesome. Uh, Laurie, can I ask, uh, tactically, when you're, when you're disassembling this, uh, when you're looking at the different um, you know, capabilities of this, of this ROM, what kind of tooling are you using to, to understand this? So I, I should probably, you know, give a caveat that, like, I, I am by no means a reverse engineering expert. I, I, I mostly just use Ghidra, which is an open source tool that's av available. And it, what it does is, is it provides a dump of the uh, assembly and the then a disassembly, you know, back in the C code side by side. And the, di the disassembly generally does a very good job, but it's certainly not perfect. So you're sometimes less, you know, scratching your head trying to figure out exactly what makes sense. Then, then it's up to me to be able to annotate the variables and the function names to be able to identify what exactly this thing is doing. I see. So it gives you, it takes the assembly, it turns it into, you know, pretend C code, and then, and then you get to edit it to try to make sense of it. Yeah. 
I would love to, because I just seeing what you've done with the Ghidra, I have not really had the occasion to really use it in anger. I would love to. What, why? I mean, Adam, it's, it's so neat what it allows you to do. And it allows you to like save this state and share it with other people too. So Laura could like work on it. And then uh, Laura, correct me if I'm wrong, but it allowed you to kind of like annotate the stuff and share it with someone else who might be able to, to offer their perspective. Yeah, and I, I think it's certainly designed in a manner such that it's supposed to be used for, for teams who are reverse engineering. It's possible to have it be a shared project, but I mean, I just have it as an individual project, but you can certainly uh, do things uh, in a much more powerful way. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert in reverse engineering by any means. Um, this is Ghidra's one such tool. I know there are other tools out there that are also do similar things. But it's it, really neat. Okay, so then you pull it up in, in Ghidra, and... I actually, can I ask you a question that I feel like, what does SB2 stand for? You know, I'm honestly not sure. Our, I'm pretty sure the 2 stands for the second generation because you talk about a version 2 format. Um, I'm not completely sure what the SB uh, stands for, and I'd love to have an answer for that. Right, some carcass of a company that was de devoured. Like it was, It's like the Plankston that was developed by the, devoured by the Sigma Tau or what have you. Um, so the you you start reverse engineering this and are you um is your disposition like we want to understand if this is a format i guess you you said this earlier that like hey if this is a format that's going to save us a lot of work we'll use it if it makes sense yeah and i think that was our original motivation because when i was writing up what exactly we were going to do for this is that i mean i talked about the trade-offs i think after we found this other vulnerability you know we had gone back and forth about whether we wanted to use this and i mean i pointed out the advantages about if it's there and i think our initial plan was that okay fine, we'll use this as a backup and, and you know, a poss possibly a worst case scenario or be able to do things that's case, you know, it, it should be fine. You know, we, we, we think we can isolate the ROM patch enough that this shouldn't be an issue. And so how shortly after getting into this code with Ghidra do you realize that, oh my goodness, the bounds checking, maybe not so much? I mean, I had sort of, again, this is sort of like a long-term project. I would sort of work on it here and there. Um, Honestly, probably sometimes working on the ROM more when I should have been doing other things. I know this is a bad thing <laughs> my boss. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. No, this is actually, actually, so I think that that's actually an extremely important point, actually, is that, because I think it is really, I found this of a lot of the, the things that we have done that have been most important, honestly, have often had this kind of origin where someone was just kind of like was following their instincts or doing something that was like related, but somewhat ancillary. So I actually think that that's, that's really important that you felt the freedom to go uh, and you should, because it's what you found is really, really important. Brian, I'm very glad to hear you say this is that, you know, I have this, you know, Hey, I have not yet disassembled the USB stack. So <laughs> <laughs> right. You are now sharing a Google doc with me that actually I would like you to, to repeat that. Yeah, exactly. That's great. Um, no, I think this stuff's great. I, always, I, I think that this stuff, I think it, it, all of this stuff that I think that people so often make the mistake of being driven by a, a particular deadline or what have you and driving past a wisp, of, a, a wisp of smoke or not exploring an issue that they should. And then as it turns out, that deadline gets blown because, boy, you should have explored that issue and discovered that there was something really substantial there. So I'm really, really glad that you explored this. Um, and uh, and our, plenty of these explorations, I'm sure, do not bear fruit. But boy, this one sure did. So yeah, when, I mean, yeah, go ahead. 
I started to take a look at this. I mean, I was kind of not, ex I was honestly not expecting to find anything. I was hopefully be able to, you know, say I, I took a look at this and be able to report back, you know, at our Hebrews huddle that says, okay, you know, I took a look about this. It seems they do. They have pretty good bounce checking and something, yada, yada, just have it, you know, kind of be an afterthought, but. Okay. So can I ask you your disposition in this? Because I feel like there is a change in disposition when you know that code is wrong. Do you know what I mean, Adam? Like the, the, where you, like, like as a code reviewer, I try to summon that same feeling that I have when I'm like, I've debugged a problem and I have debugged the problem down to this function. I know this function has a bug. Like the way I read code when I, I, I feel when I, when I have that disposition is so different than the way I read code. Like I'm, it's a total, and Laura, when you go in, are you, what is your disposition? Like, I want to understand this or is your disposition like, no, no, I am convinced that there's a, there, there's a problem in here. So I initially just started just wanting to understand exactly how the parsing actually worked and just be able to try and understand this just because it's it's ended up being a, a fairly large state machine. And I mean, state machines are one of these things that I think is, you know, kind of like the bread and butter of, uh, of a programmer in terms of having to something to, to implement in terms of trying to see exactly how this thing works. But I mean, I was also curious about what exactly it was had to do in terms of trying to process all these things and how exactly you checked all things, just because, I mean, the, the, the format is um, somewhat complex. And I mean, there are a lot of... Yeah. And I was exactly how it worked, especially some of the quirks about, you know, how, how it does uh, some of the um, encryption and other things like that. So I think, I think I started out with just, you know, genuine curiosity and then, you know, uh, got the brain cells or ideas going and says, I wonder how well exactly they're balance checking. I mean, I, I think I just, you know, went in with a curiosity just in terms of just trying to figure out exactly you know, looking at this as if I were a code review says, okay, you know, the input I'm giving is coming from me. What exactly can I do exactly if I, you know, set these uh, fields to be larger or smaller? And do you think that the presence of the earlier vulnerability changed your disposition at all? Um, it's possible that I, I, I think it probably did have some impact. I, I mean, I, I think especially just because um, in terms of other things, you're just trying to keep, take a, a look about trying to figure out what it is. And I mean, honestly, I, I in sort of counterintuitive, I think if NXP had released the ROM source code, I probably would not have spent all this time trying to uh, look at it just because auditing ROM sources, you know, far less. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. It would have been too boring to read the actual source yeah, code. Right. It was much more of an adventure to grovel through the disassembly. Yes. So, I mean, I, but, I, but I think the fact that, you know, it, it was uh, there and sort of, you know, staring me in the face in terms of what exactly is this thing doing? Um, that, that's fantastic. I love it. And, and with regard to the bounce checking here, if I read the blog post correctly, it wasn't that they did it wrong. It's that they didn't do it for, for this, uh, for this block. Was that right? Um, so it's, th th that's a good way of putting it. So for, for those who haven't read the blog post, um, the, the way this uh, vulnerability ended up working is, is that, I, as I mentioned, this is an update format that's uh, designed to be processed in 16-byte chunks. And what it is is, is that uh, the blocks are numbered, you know, from z zero on to the end in terms of identifying where certain pieces would be. Um, so there was a, one, one piece of the header was uh, supposed to be uh, where exactly you could find um, the, the set of uh, key blobs for keys for being able to do, do the decryption. And what it, it turns out what they were bounce checking on in terms of uh, being able to do some copying was that they were not checking is, is that if we had gone up to the header size and said you were talking about when you reach a specific number and you ended up with a classic buffer overflow that way. Yeah, wow. That must have been amazing for that light to go, to 
Now, when you kind of made that realization, were you thinking like, okay, I must be missing something somewhere. It can't be. It's there's got to be this code. So I mean, I I probably say when I was um, back, backing up a, a few more steps about how this works. So the this buffer this bug ended up being pretty bad just because it was designed to be used in uh, ISP mode. And ISP mode is supposed to be pretty restricted in terms of what you're supposed to be able to do. You're not supposed to be able to run arbitrary code. But um, I was initially doing some testing because the same parser code is used uh, to be able to do this from in application programming. And I was stepping through it with a debugger um, to be able to see what it is and be able to get a better idea. And I mean, I really knew I was actually onto something when I was stepping through and I could see it was writing outside the bounds of the buffer I was there. And then, I mean, once that happened, I knew I just... <laughs> Wow. Uh, it was just a matter of could I actually turn it into something useful or was I just reporting that there was an overflow? Okay. And then, okay, so then I would assume that like that is a real inflection point where you're like, okay, now we are, we go from curiosity to now my, the, the, the tenor of my curiosity has shifted. Blood is in the water. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm trying to not necessarily make Laura sound like an apex predator, but at some point you must feel like, yes, blood is in the water. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. I'm forever going to be chasing the high of, you know, getting code execution. Like, it's it's a pretty good feeling. It's a good, yeah. I, I mean, it is definitely, right. I mean, it's a, it's a good feeling just to watch. I feel like I'm watching, like, a, a uh, so it must be extraordinary um, to, to realize that, like, wait a minute. I, and, I mean, th this vulnerability, I don't think we're exaggerating. This vulnerability is, 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 I think, much more serious than the and not not downplay the severity of the vulnerability you found last year at all, but this one is really really bad news. Yeah, the, 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 I think what it is is in particular with this one. Um, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the the update format here is both encrypted and signed, so it's designed to come in. But this bug actually comes in before the signature checking actually happens, uh, which makes it pretty bad. When I started to take a look, I was kind of expecting to see exactly I might have found something after the signature had been checked, which would have been kind of bad, but less bad, just because that would have meant that you would have actually had to sign an image before you could actually do something uh, useful, which is, again, you get to a different level of threat model there. But I mean, the fact that basically you could send any uh, no, any set of bytes and be able to get this then. It's bad news. And especially because if, if you have a secure microcontroller in your architecture, in your device, it's probably because you have something worth securing. I mean, there's, so the kind of the presence of this, right? Yeah. But I feel like it's also worth saying, you know, we're very doom and gloom, but I think it's also worth establishing like, what things is, is that this, this vulnerability didn't, did not give us? I mean, this vulnerability let, lets you give us execution, but not fully persistent execution if you have um, things uh, locked down and fully signed, you know, with their, what, what that means is, is that uh, you, you would, if you did a reboot, you'd, you'd have to be able to do this again. If you're using your security, NXP security mechanisms, um, things are still protected there. Uh, you can't fully change part of the key store or other things like that. Um, you can't actually uh, do the signature, you still have the signature checking. Um, but one thing I would say that you, uh, that was pretty bad was being able to extract um, the device secret, which was related to uh, the dice feature. Yeah. This is one of these where like, okay, this is like not, not my domain of expertise, but like extracting the device secret, that seems bad. Yeah. And, and what it is, is, is that, um, uh, Dice is a feature that comes from the Trusted Computing Group that's uh, designed to be able to give um, an identity used for attestation. So the idea is, is, is that um, 
it's uh, based on um, HMAC, HMAC to be able to do a calculation based on what code is, is, on, is in there. So the idea is, is that you can get um, uh, an identifier that can be used as a secure uh, key. And the idea is that you're supposed to have a device secret that's well secret so, so that nobody else can um, use that to be able to uh, eventually be able to derive the key. And um, what it is with this vulnerability, you're actually able to extract that before things get locked down. And I mean, th this is one of these things that actually it's... It, it, it sounds bad, but, but it's kind of a fallout about when exactly this bug had happened, because what it is, is because the device secret is used con in, in conjunction with the image that's on the flash, you need to have those two tied together. So because ISP doesn't actually have you booting into an image yet, it's necessarily going to be um, unflashed yet. So I think the fact that I was able to extract it didn't necessarily mean there was a weakness necessarily in how that was protected. It was much more just that I was able to do this before you had an image there. Right, 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 right. Okay, because you were able to basically inject, but this is before um, we actually got the image. The um, so talk. So you discovered this on like right before Christmas. Yes, and so I and I recall us. Did we get on a call? I mean, I definitely recall you discovering this. The the thing I thought was really interesting is in addition to contacting NXP. Because I think unlike, well, I guess like the previous vulnerability too, we had a real concern about what is the impact on our product here. Like this actually could be really devastating if we can't use up an update functionality at all. Yeah, and, and I think that was why once, you know, we got done trying to do the, the vulnerability reporting, I, I think I was worked with, you know, Rick and others to try and do a write-up about what exactly this would mean for a product, product in terms of trying to evaluate our options in terms of trying to actually get a product out there just because again you know it turns out th th this is all nifty stuff but uh we can't actually sell you know uh the the uh pride in terms of finding vulnerabilities so <laughs> right oh, well right. <laughs> I, I i'm not sure we can't we uh, we can we can try yeah exactly but no that's true we, we we can't sell defcon talks it turns out they give those videos out for free so we actually need to uh so but I, I thought that that so we as folks probably know we have these requests for discussions RFDs and so Laura you, you your go to was to write an RFD about this new vulnerability and our level of exposure Yeah and and I think honestly I was doing it half and you know to organize my thoughts as well in terms of trying to to figure things out and be hopefully be able to give a summary I mean mostly because I think to be able to point back to it later and says, okay, why exactly do we make this decision in terms of being able to just lay out all the trade-offs? And I think that was where I, th I think I started up just, you know, pointing out, it says, okay, this is not affected. This is affected in terms of being able to say it out for everyone, then being able to lay out, figure out what exactly we, were we likely to be able to do about this. And I think that this is, I think this RFP is great because it is so helpful to, and I, it sounds like it was helpful for you as well to kind of like, okay, what are the actual paths here? Uh, certainly one of the paths and one of the paths that we definitely got, got asked about, Laura, I don't know if people asked you about this directly as well, but they're like, what if like, Hey, how many vulnerabilities are you going to have to find in this thing before you start using something else? Like, are you in a bad relationship with this part? Um, and that, that was, yeah, we had seriously considered in terms of trying to figure out if it was out there. But again, I, I think what it is, is, is that the, the set of, um, features we were looking for in a part, it was actually very hard to try and find something that we wanted that was out there. And so, I, and again, I, I think we sort of went around in circles is, is, is that 
there wasn't anything um, that was out there that I think will that was actually available we could purchase because that's the key. I think there were a couple of things that always sounded promising, but I think even when we were starting to search for the part, I think back in you know when I joined in uh, early 2020 before we started to getting into major chip shortages, I think we, there were certain things that were still unobtainium, and now you know even more of these things are even more unobtainium. So I think it, it was sort of the doing a careful calculation about what exactly are we supposed to do at this point? Is that these things just aren't out there and we have to ship something. Well, yeah. and even then, what would we look for? A part that had not had vulnerabilities found in it yet, right? Like, because when, when we were evaluating the NXP 55, these, uh, you know, these vulnerabilities were unknown and, you know, it hadn't been Laura Abbotted yet. Exactly. <laughs> so, this is your always eat jack in the box. This is the after the, the <laughs> after right. after the E. coli outbreak in California Jack in the Box. So that's the. This is something I thought in my twenties. True. I would not eat a jack in the box. <laughs> I that that is an unverifiable claim. <laughs> I don't, I don't think that that's right at all. I think that that is. Uh, yeah, talk about challenging creativity. You are now challenging me <laughs> to put you in a situation where you will not even Jack in the Box. So yeah, good luck yeah. with that. Because you know what? Jack in the Box is actually pretty good. Like you, I, I, That's what I got to say. Jack in the Box, not that bad. So, Laura. But when building a product around this part or it, where this is a key component, it's not that like no one vulnerability is necessarily debilitating or uh, it doesn't preclude it or you know, make the whole product insecure. Right. And, and I think that this, kind of, again, goes back to our threat model in terms of trying to figure out what exactly it means in terms of trying to mitigate this. Because if we think about when we go back to the ROM patch here, you know, that, that was a pretty bad one. But then it also turns out we did the analysis is that we could narrow down about under what circumstances um, we could uh Actually, we would actually be vulnerable to this, and we were able to, you know, sit down and discuss it and decide. Okay, if we take these precautions and um, set things up like this, we feel we've isolated enough to avoid any potential issue. And I think we, we did the same thing with this one as well, especially in terms of evaluating what the what the update mechanism is. Is, is that th this uh, issue was limited to being able to use the update mechanism? So I think, you know, the the safest thing I think is to be if you can't get a, a fixed part, is just to not use that update mechanism. Yeah, and the and then I mean the stakes are higher too for us in terms of timing. Um, I mean we are you know Laura found this. I mean the timing was in one hand great. She found it after we done our EBT one, but as we're working on our second EBT rev, and it's like if we're not going to use the LPC five, like we need to make that decision tonight. I mean that is there was urgency to it. And Laura, I think the exact line you had in the in the RFD was that the the LPC five S sixty nine is a, is the winner in a sea of mediocre candidates. And it is like, I think it's important for people to realize that it's, this is not, and, and actually to be fair to the domain, this is a hard, hard, hard problem. Secure silicon is yeah. really, 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 really hard. And there are so many vectors and you're going to put this thing in someone's physical hands and then expect it to keep secrets. And that is super hard, I think. It really is. And, and I think in terms of especially trying to figure out the, the set of features we actually wanted to be able to do this, this is a so, somewhat narrow, I'm, I'm not going to claim it's a super, super narrowly scoped, but I think also, you know, at Oxide, we were kind of picky about what things are out there. And it's been, I think especially in terms of, of trying to look, look at uh, what what exactly we wanted to do for things. Um, I mean, I'm not sure if people saw when it was going around the uh, um, 
person I'm blanking on his name who who broke the uh, hardware crypto wallet. That's an example about you know something we try and evaluate about what what exactly we're, we're trying to do. So yeah, and I think that the other thing that it, Adam you're talking about like the vulnerabilities not found in other parts. I think for us like to contemplate something else, it has to be there has to be something very tangible that we're getting not just oh by the way we don't think there are vulnerabilities in this other part because i think nxp has taught us that we <laughs> never to trust again what i th- would want it something that would get our attention i feel and this is not for our first product because we're kind of locked and loaded but laura i'd love to your take on this but i feel like an open a truly open top to bottom open open boot rom open rom product is would be interesting i mean it would need to be all open uh, something open would actually absolutely be a, a great start, or at least be have a good way to, for us to be able to review the source code and be able to see exactly what's on that. And I mean, I, I think it would also be interesting to, to look at and see exactly if we can have a smaller footprint for the ROM. Um, I think it was actually uh, Cliff who was uh, unhappy even before we were first selecting the chip that it seemed to have this boot ROM, just because I think he preferred just to be able to have it uh, chips just boot up and you know run exactly your own code, which I can understand exactly why he does that, especially now we see exactly why Cliff had that uh, totally okay so expand on that actually i didn't i, I haven't actually gotten this particular uh rant from cliff so how is so his view is that the boot rom is completely unnecessary effectively um i, I don't think I, I don't want to put words in cliff's cliff's mouth here but i mean i i, I think i've heard him before say he generally preferred especially uh earlier generation chips it seems it seems like that would when you would boot up, it would literally just boot to your own code and you would be able to do things that way. Um, but again, I, th- I think we talk about things like a secure processor, it turns out that you sort of end up with the bootstrapping problem yeah. about, okay, if, if anyone can try and um, get in and to be able to program code just because that's what you need to do if you don't have a boot ROM, then that means anybody can get in, you know, you or, you know, your nefarious uh, hacker. So. It's also a real pain that you need, you want to be able to change the software on this thing. Um, it, it, you don't want to actually just ship a ROM mask. Like we actually want to ship software to this. You want to change the software. And that's the origin of a lot of this challenge is our ability. I mean, that was the origin of it with the flash ROM patcher and with the SP2 issue. It's like, ultimately it boils down to upgrading the software securely or fixing it securely is really, really challenging. Yes. So, okay. So now you, we, we are evaluating it's late December uh, you, I think, are, are wondering, if I recall, kind of out loud, if you're like, oh, wow, this is like, I guess this is like a winter solstice activity for me. This is what I do for the solstice. <laughs> I, I forget if it was you who noted that or, or I who, who noted that, who exactly noted that. But yeah, this kind of ended up coming like right before Christmas, I will admit, because there was a little bit of oxide downtime. So I decided to take advantage of that to try and what I was calling going to call play around with this a little bit more so right okay so we uh it's that time of the year we celebrate the solstice by finding a vulnerability you uh you disclose this to NXP and it's probably worth saying that NXP's reaction this time is is different Yes, and I think um, NXP was was very receptive to this. I, I think, uh, especially, I think we were able to show them a proof of concept. And I'm, and I mean, I, I would probably say this entire thing I think was a lesson for Oxide as well into how to do uh, vulnerability disclosure as well. As I mean, I, I think we try and be good citizens in terms of how we communicate, but I think also making sure you have a clear proof of concept and explain things as uh, clearly as possible. I, I mean. 
I, I do think, you know, NXP is full of engineers who are working very hard. But I, I think, you know, if I think about it, for example, is that if we were to find a vulnerability, someone else were to find a vulnerability in Oxide code, I would appreciate having a well-written write-up in terms of showing exactly where things are. So I think in terms of trying to figure out exactly where things were. So, so We try to be complete as possible. You had a very, I think, very thorough. It was very hard to argue with it, too. I mean, it's just like, um, and I mean, to their credit, like they didn't, right? I mean, they they accepted that this was a vulnerability. Cause I think we also were feeling we had negotiated on timeline with the first vulnerability. And I feel Laura, I seem to recall us thinking like we're this time we really are not going to negotiate on timeline. It's really important to us. Yeah. I think there were some, some things that I think we were based on, uh, we reflected based on our previous time. Um, but, and I, and I think this time, if, fortunately, I think we didn't ha end up having to go there. I think they were very receptive in terms of trying to um, get it out there and keeping us up to date and everything like like that. I, I mean, and, and I'd, I'd like to believe, you know, we were trying helpful and trying to guide them into ultimately do the right thing because what we Is see this just going to mean. Oh, sorry. Did, did Laura not break up for you, Adam? No. 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 I think no, that's just spaces, no. It's okay. Hang on, Brian. Hang on. <laughs> God. <laughs> Stay together. <laughs> it's okay, Brian. I, it's it's not okay at all. But so sorry, Laura. I missed what you said. Um, I, I mean, I'm just pointing out that, that things were going uh much better with NXP this time, and I mean, I'm I'm you know very glad that things I think did go well, just because I I think I, I want to see them you know continuing to try and uh, be more proactive about security, and I, I'd like to see all companies out there do that in terms of um, being able to get disclosures out there and make sure they're protecting not just their customers but also you know everybody out there who uses. Lord, this is a really good point because I think we are, and hopefully we have never come across as just kind of like uh, beating up on an XP because we actually we actually want all these companies to do better. We want them to actually do better, not just by us, but by their customers, by the industry, and we want to, them to improve. So I think I would like to believe that our previous experience with NXP made them better this time. I mean, they certainly it felt like they took us more seriously, um, or they certainly didn't didn't challenge the the, the severity of this. Um, and I thought they did also did a better job of. Uh, not minimizing it and getting ahead of it and then disclosing it to their own customers. Because th on this one, like you got some customers that are potentially very, very exposed. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, it sounded like that they did a much better job about trying to uh, get this out there. So I think that that was definitely something we are, you know, happy. We, uh, we were very happy to see. Very happy to see. Yeah. No, Brian, you know, imagining the perspective of our future customers, you know, at some point on our website, we're going to have some description about, our root of trust and our security posture. And presumably we're just going to, in, we're going to embrace these vulnerabilities and describe how, you know, the attack vectors and how it's not applicable, but, but continue in that, in that uh, transparency. Absolutely. I mean, in terms of like a vulnerability in oxide software, for example. No, what I mean is like this NXP part, which is part of the ox yes. oxide rack, yeah. has these vulnerabilities that appear on our blog. So we're going to tell people, you know, what that what the implications are or are not. For That's them. right. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that absolutely, and I think that we, you know, we all of us at the company have been on the the kind of the receiving end of vendors not always being transparent, not always being forthright, and I think you know we want to be the example we want to see in the world. So um, we, I, I think, also even when we have issues that are, and we've seen this as recently as Okta where, boy, companies can turn a small issue 
into a much more substantial issue of trust when they decide to minimize it. It's like, it's not our, like we want to explain to you what your exposure is or what we know the exposure to be. And then it's on all of us together to figure out what the actual impact of that is. I think it's really dangerous to say like, oh, there's this problem, but you don't need to worry about it. It's like, uh, why don't you tell me more information? Especially when we've been so explicit about the problem. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and I, because I think that the, honestly, the most important thing here in many regards is the, in terms of, of delivering a trustworthy system for the long term, is the trust that we have in one another, that companies have in us, that we have in, in, in our partners. And that you do not want to sacrifice that trust because of a single defect or vulnerability. Yeah, absolutely. So, Laura, you wrote this terrific blog entry. Um, which uh, came out um, oh, like a week and a half ago. Um, Was it really only a week and a half ago? <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah, it's the 23rd of March. It is. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I guess coming up on two weeks ago, but it's like, yeah, I mean, it was not that long ago. Yeah, so, so what has happened? Uh, well, actually, so one thing I thought was interesting is on the first vulnerability, um, you wrote a terrific blog entry, and I think it was, you know, it was, it was technically very dense and a little underappreciated by the, because uh, my view is like, hey, hacker news, this is true hacker news, news for hackers. And, but that story, I think it like, it was a little slower. Um, I feel with this one, it really took off and people saw the significance of it right away. Is that a fair characterization, Laura? Um, I don't pay attention to hacker news. <laughs> I have plenty. Well done. Oh, oh God, so, I know. I'm uh, so sorry. I feel so dirty now. Yeah, no, you, 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 I know. Honestly, anyone out there, if you, it's, if you want to snipe Brian, you know, I can give you an itemized list of ways to snipe. <laughs> right. Uh, right, turn to the page of four. Oh, right. God. I, look, I, 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 I'm immunocompromised. We know this. I, it's just, I, 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 <laughs> yes, the list is long. I know. This is sport. We talk about vulnerabilities in software, but, you know, we have vulnerabilities. <laughs> I, that's right. This is our greatest secu- security problem. In Look, I'm all attack surface. Okay, I'm sorry. I it's true. God, <laughs> it's true. Um, but I thought the, I thought it was. What's well, important to me that like I think that this is something we should be talking about as an industry. I think this is it is incredibly technically interesting, but it's also very important, and it hits on these other bigger issues around how. Uh, we kind of carry ourselves as companies and as, as consumers of technology who are making technology. So yeah, I want to, I know I'm putting the, 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 uh, the, the best possible uh, sheen on it, but I think it is important that Hacker News discuss this stuff. And on this, it's like, it was, people really uh, jumped at it and discussing it in all the right ways. Of course, there were people who are asking us like, why are we still using this part? But I thought we did a, um, I, by and large, I thought that the tone of the discussion was exactly what you'd want, which is uh, people uh, both appreciating the sophistication of in terms of finding this, but then especially kind of calling on folks to do better and and make this stuff transparent. So we can, Laura doesn't have to use Ghidra to figure this stuff out. One of the things I appreciate about that discussion um, was the uh, the fact that this ROM had been reviewed. And Laura, Laura mentioned that in the blog post, that like, uh, alleged security experts had looked at the the code, like the actual code, not not through Ghidra, but like looked at it and blessed it as okay. 
And there's this whole industry of, you know, patting each other on the back for these security reviews where it seems like they're paid for the answer to be yes, but that may be overly cynical. I think it is kind of overly cynical there. Well, I, fair I, enough. I, I do think um, it is, you know, security reviews are practiced, but I think it's also a matter of question about what exactly are they looking for and trying to find. And I mean, you know, no security, as I mentioned in the blog post, no security review is guaranteed to find every every type of issue. But I think if we, you know, we think about transparency, I think it's worth highlighting to um, uh, would say, what exactly did your security review find? Because if, if you did a security review and the feedback is only, you know, check plus, you know, a a, a plus, um, that's a, a sign that maybe it wasn't actually covering the right areas. That's a great point, yeah. Mark, because it, it's like it's like no CVEs. It's like, well, there might be two reasons for that. Either it's the most secure thing in the world or you're lying. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and same thing, like if, if you're, if the report card comes back, you know, straight A's, no problems, never missed a day in class, like that's probably not right. true. Somebody, and, right. Yeah. That's, and if you're not willing, sure, you may not be willing to release the source code, but why not release your, like the problems that you've already fixed? Like that seems like a, maybe a good first step even in terms of the transparency we'd like to see. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that question. What did the review find? Um, so I, I know some folks have requested to speak, so um, I want to get um, if folks have got questions for Laura or um, uh, comments on other secure microcontrollers, um, get kind of folks, because uh, this is, again, a very interesting issue. And so, Laura, what is the, uh, in, in how does this, like I said, a week and a half ago, we got this out there. Um, what has been the reception, um, the non-hacker news reception have, have uh have folks reached out to us with superlative alternatives or? Um, I, I haven't heard any, you know, super exciting uh, alternatives. I mean, I think a lot of people thought it was very interesting. And I think there's also, I, I think a lot of, you know, lamenting about how this is putting something like this together is very hard in terms of making a processor and especially trying to do security response is hard. So. It is really, really hard. It is really hard. It's, it's very technically hard. It's it. So it is a challenge, but I think we, we can do better. And I would like to believe that with the transparency from, vendors we can do better so uh ian you uh did you have a, a comment or question uh yeah uh just uh thanks again to laura for the write-up and for her uh, the time today discussing the kind of lead up to it uh for both blogs is a very interesting discussion i'm curious um as you were talking about the the lpc 55 part uh, and the lack of documentation being a barrier to entry for you to be able to implement the things that you want to do with this part. Um, I'm curious whether or not you're building your own internal and or personal documentation for this part as you're working your way through these questions that you have for how to implement stuff in it. And if so, is that documentation something you're considering open sourcing for other people to be able to you know, build upon the, uh, the work you've done so far and understanding it? Um, I, I think we are working to try and uh, I, I think more than anything, some some level of documentation, but also especially trying to get out um, our, our own tooling to be able to do this out, which I think more than anything is uh, a good example about how you're actually supposed to be able to do things. And I think um, a shining example about the other people to do is or the uh, solo keys is another example about people who want to follow. They're, they're making security keys also based on the LPC 55 and they also have their uh, own reference code. So I think um, getting more reference code out there is, is other thing, 
is uh, great. And I think also just being able to try and find the community about being able to ask questions about um, how this works. And I mean, th that's half the reason I wanted to do the blog post is talking about how some of this actually works so that it's hopefully uh, out there to be able to do this. But I, but I think if there are specific questions people have. I mean, I think we can try and figure out if there's a, a good way to be able to put that out there. Yeah, CV uses documentation. I love it. And then, Laura, where is, just so folks know, where is our kind of reference code for the, the tooling and, and the use of the LPC35? Uh, it's on GitHub. It's on the Oxide GitHub right now. Um, I should a lot of it probably needs to be cleaned up and re refactored in terms of in, in terms of the that for long term. But I mean, it's certainly out there and being able to uh, show how some of it works in terms of being able to build these images and other things like that. And I think I you know we we have another way to go to be able to um, make it for what we want to do for the final product. But but I think well that highlights two things. One, I think it's important. Sometimes people want to wait until source code is perfect to open it, and that's really too late because it's not going to be perfect. So I think it's great that it, that the tooling that we've got there is all out there. Um, the and then the second thing that it highlights, which is actually important, and this is not true for all of our partners, the information that we have about the way the the LPC five works is not under NDA documentation in general, or actually I put an asterisk on that. I don't think we've got, I think most of the docs that we've got are the public docs, um, which is maybe some exception to that, but broadly the way the chip works is actually documented, uh, which is not true for say the, for the host CPUs, for, for your AMD Intel CPUs. You don't have that, that complete public documentation. Yeah, and then I mean, I think the documentation generally is available, and you're and you're able to use. I mean, we're certainly not going to be out there rehosting NXP's documentation, but I think describing exactly the format of images and you know showing exactly how to build things out there. And and I, I would also say to NXP's credit, they've also gotten better. They they have their own GitHub with with which has uh, their code to be able to build images and other things out there to get a better idea about how things work. And I think um seeing more of that out there is great. And I think again, that's that's the future we want to see. Absolutely. Steps in the right direction. Uh, and Ian, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, and I think you're going to see that for other parts that we, particular AMD Milan, uh, where we've taken a very, very different approach to the software out there. I do think that our, that there'll be bits for which our source code will, will serve as that kind of missing documentation where we've kind of figured out how this thing works. Uh, Todd, did you, uh, did you have a question for, for Laura? Oh, nope. I just, I preemptively requested. <laughs> just, just getting ahead of things. You just never know. It's like, or maybe you want to fight me over Jack in the Box, but I definitely, I will welcome all. <laughs> no, it just, it just takes time to get the mic. So I thought. <laughs> there you go. That's it. That's it. Get ahead of things. And uh, Jason, did you have a specific question for Laura? Well, I just, just when you made the comment about the um, security by obscurity, it just reminded me of a statement I'd. Um, had heard from a company that shall remain nameless when they defined open source as uh, permitting select partners uh, being able to view the source code to their product under NDA. <laughs> That's their definition of open source. Yes. And You're like, um, mm -hmm. okay. And okay. just when he said that, it just reminded me of that. And so I thought I, you know, well, so it, one thing that actually I do find very frustrating that I would maybe we can get Rick up here to to offer some color on, but the this idea that you hear this excuse that like no 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 we can't open source our source code because then we will get dinged for our common criteria evaluation. I would love to know how true that is because I feel I mean Laura, am I making that up? We have heard that from folks before. 
We have heard that. And, and I, I think from some discussion with other people is, is that it turns out what it, um, okay, I should, you know, saying this on a recorded call and something I don't fully understand is probably a bad idea. But my understanding is, is that like, there are a certain number of points you can assign. And I, I think there's some interpretation where if you have things open source, it doesn't get you full points because of the way things are, but that, that doesn't mean you can't meet the criteria. Got it. So they get points off for being open source, which is a, I mean, that is a, a regulatory tragedy. I'm not sure how that, plausible that is to change, but geez. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Jeez. And because unfortunately it's like th- these vendors, as we know, like they need all the coaxing. It's like their, their disposition is already to not make the stuff open. Um, they need all the coaxing that they can get. So just to have a, giving them any excuse to not make it open is really, really frustrating. And because Laura, we even offered to, we just want to look at the boot ROM, even under, we're not even, at, we're certainly not asking for it to be open source. Uh, happy to, to look at it. We would like it to be open source, obviously, but we're happy to look at it under even uh, in, in a clean room effectively. And even that was, was no good. Yeah. And, and I think that that was rejected. And I think one of our other colleagues, Ben Stoltz actually mentioned is, is that he had actually done that for other of his uh, password because exactly he had done, um, you know, NDA review of, of boot ROM source code, I think, sitting in a, in a room somewhere. So, I, I mean, it's, it's certainly plausible. But again, it's, you know, you, you have to be allowed to be able to do that. That's right. Um, and th- yeah, you have to be allowed to do that. But it, and certainly I just feel that with uh, this in particular just feels like I, if you see the source code, this one is going to be rectifiable by looking at the source code. Do you actually, Laura, do you want to see the source code to the boot ROM? Does this make you want to look at the source code more? Uh, yes, I think I do actually want to see it at this point just to try and, you know, cross-check some other things to see if I actually got things right um, from, you know, my own disassembly and trying to figure out what things are doing. And I, it should be said that Laura now NXP knows Laura. It's not just Oxide, but NXP is definitely uh, whenever they 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 like you know please give like thank Laura for her disclosure. They you know they are they definitely uh, I, I I don't know if Laura might go so far as to say they're afraid of you, but I think they might be afraid of you. you th- I mean, you think they're on their Christmas card list? I mean. <laughs> I, I just think that we, you know, they, they know that. I, I do wonder if they're going to be holding their breath around the uh, around the solstice. Uh, Todd, yeah, you got your hands up, and then then to to Ben. Oh yeah, I, I guess I did have a question about just security reviews in general. As someone who runs a package manager project, how do you scale this stuff? Like, I mean, I can understand you know reviewing for a particular product, um, but if you're accepting contributions from, you know, say you take 500 pull requests a month or something like that. And it's for you know upstream stuff. Um, do you have any recommendations for how to secure that, or or what what the good practices are? That's a great question, Laura. You want to take a swing at that one? Um, I, I think as far as is scaling, um, I mean, sometimes I think it's just helpful to know exactly your domain area to begin with, I, I think, in terms of trying to figure out exactly what you're trying to accomplish. And, and I think it's also worth, you know, considering is, is that if you found one bug one time, there's a good chance you'll, you'll see uh, other things one time. As, as far as trying to, you know, scale things, um, I think making sure everybody's up to speed about as much, and I think also improving documentation. Um, honestly, I, I think I probably have a pretty weak answer here. So I'll, I'll, I'll defer to others if they'd like to, you know, give a more complete answer. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, it's, 
not that I'm giving a complete answer because I think it's a, it's a very thorny question. I do feel, Todd, that, I mean, not to uh, be on brand, but it's much harder to review code in memory on safe languages and be as certain. Certainly for me, the, the vulnerability that was found in Dtrace, which, uh, which was a, an integer overflow issue that led to a memory on safety issue that was lit in lint clean code, I found to be very chilling. Like this is code that I had reviewed, I had written carefully, it had been reviewed carefully. It wasn't like, it wasn't sloppy. And it was clean code, well commented. And that was very chilling to me about just how hard it is to review your way into a secure system. So I, I think that the reviews are necessary, but definitely insufficient. And I do think you need to look at things like programming language and, and then, of course, like not all code touches the same part of the system, not all code, you know, the, the boot ROM in a secure microcontroller is very, very different than, you know, a humility debugging command, for example, that, that where we're not nearly as worried about that kind of stuff. So I think having that kind of understanding that spectrum is important, too. I don't think I have any hopeful thoughts here other than saying, I mean, this is like the problem of our era, right? Like that we're all including in our products any random piece of trash we find on github <laughs> and the in the transitive closure is that and so like or, or in my product in my package manager you're including that code too that's awesome yeah, yeah. oh well part of me i mean any random piece of excellence or any random <laughs> piece of trash part of me i just mean we're pulling in you know who knows what into our products and like how can we possibly attest to the perfection of all of it, or e even that it hasn't been tampered with, um, you know, unbeknownst to us. I mean, so, it, it, it seems intractable. Well, so Adam, I kind of feel like, you know, people kind of criticize others for like, oh, you're just typing curl and piping it into bash. It's like, no, no, we're all typing curl and piping it into bash. Like, <laughs> you know, like, like, you may not think you're doing that, but we are all downloading software off the internet and running it, every single one of us. Well, yeah, I never understand that because it's like you download a binary, you're basically typing curl and piping it directly to your processor. So, like, what's the difference? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, ben, you, you had your hand up. Yeah, I, one thing that impresses me is that this kind of work is in scope for us for developing our product. Um, you know, we're trying to, to serve customers who have been, they, they're, they're, they're between a rock and a hard place. They either have to spend a lot of money on cloud services that they anyway they spent a lot of money for cloud services and those companies have very deep pockets and they are working in this problem because they need their customers trust they need to be able to run arbitrary workloads and uh, have them be trustworthy versus uh, you know customers who take this task on themselves and are building together some stack of switches and operating systems and virtualization layers and hardware from suppliers and a, a lot of this type of work is somebody else's problem you know yeah. you're bog, you're so bogged down trying to integrate these pieces and accommodate their quirks where you know yes they implement a standard but um everyone does it in their own way uh, which is an unfortunate reality of of the industry um and, and this you know that we are we are you know we don't have a bmc that has to implement cd-rom drive emulation <laughs> and uh, you, you know, remote USB and all that. You know, we're we're making a fit for purpose appliance that will give you a trustworthy platform so you can run arbitrary workloads. And the part of 
the value is being able to trust that stack, which puts this work directly in scope. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, yeah I think for, for so, I mean, and we certainly talked to so many folks for whom the folks focused on the security of the system feel beleaguered because it's an afterthought or it's not in scope or it's something they know is important. But there's no time or energy left to address them. You're just yeah. trying to get your network stack to talk to something else, you know. Yeah. But uh, that's that's part of what we're doing. Yeah, which as you're right, I mean, it's it's a it's a, a luxury in a certain regard to be so focused on it. Because I do feel, Laura, part of the problem, part of the reason that this is not just a very hard technical problem around a security a secure MCU. Like economically, it's not like people also want these MCUs, especially if you've got like, you know, a Bitcoin wallet or something. It's like, oh, by the way, it needs to be like three cents. It's like, OK, well, which is more important because it's it, it's it's uh, hard when it's not in scope for these folks. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point about, you know, trying to actually uh, define a product because, I mean, in terms of actually trying to sell a, a general purpose microcontroller, just because ultimately this is something that's the LPC55 has security features, but it's still ultimately general purpose. And I mean, you know, when we think about what it looks like long term, I, th- I think we've, you know, somewhat joked about what would, if we had our, you know, billion dollars, what would we design for our own ASIC about what we would exactly want to do for our own, uh, you know, secure processor. And it, it does feel like that's just going to be uh, when Oxide does our own silicon. It does feel like this is going to be some of the first, in part because it, it is uh, is in scope. And as you say, uh, Matt, your your hand was up. Yeah. So I part of me is just wondering how big is this boot ROM? Because I mean, it seems to me like the proper size for a boot ROM ought to be about you know five hundred twelve bytes and not much more than that. Um, but clearly there's enough stuff in there that you're able to get all sorts of interesting bugs and behaviors. So I guess on, on the small, just generically, what is the ROM doing? Um, if it turns out to be kind of, yeah, oh, here, it, start with the first one. <laughs> Uh, so the ROM itself is, um, definitely, uh, more than a couple of kilobytes. I mean, it contains an entire stack for parsing X509 certificates. So that should give you some of the idea about uh, the, the size of this ROM and in terms of its, its full feature. But again, this is sort of ends up being a trade-off about what exactly it tries to do, just because um, I, I think part of the explanation NXP gave for, for some of this is, is that it turns out customers were actually ask, asking for a lot of these things to be in ROM, especially for things like being able to write to the Flash. Because the flip side about not about having things as ROM is that means is that you don't have to take up your your own precious Flash space to be able to um, uh, be able to write things like Flash loading or update mechanisms. So that good stuff just because a flash is often a limiting factor for um, uh, some of these things. So, so I think there yeah. are good reasons why it's there, but you then you have the trade-off about making sure then you know it starts to grow uh, too much, and again you end up with all sorts of unknown things. Yeah, that's a real tension. You're like, oh, well, the boot yeah. has nothing in it. It's like, okay, well, now your software and Laura, you mentioned this earlier about that you and you do end up with this bootstrapping problem of secure upgrade becomes really difficult without having some root of the root of trust. Yeah. And I, I think we're trying to get that in there and making sure things are out there. And again, you know, I started out by talking about, I was breaking all these trips and I, I think part of the reason for having a boot ROM is, is that ensure that there's always something that can go up and have some way to recover the chip. So if you um, flash something on there in some way, that's in a very wedge state, um, you can uh, still manage to get, get in there. Even uh, if, if, you know, you know, your code is very bad. 
Yeah. And sorry, Matt, did you have a, did you have a follow? Sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the follow-up, if it turned out to be small, was do you think there's even any source code or is it just some guy who's right in hand tuned assembly? Clearly, that's not the case for X509. No, um, I, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I think at one point you could have argued that, that some boot ROMs would have just been hand tuned assembly, but I think this absolutely looks like it is a C code that is written in, into there. I mean, otherwise, you know, someone is out there uh, writing mem copy by hand. I mean, that's, that's certainly possible, but... Um... Yeah, and, and the I, the counterpoint on the large-scale side is if you have written a software project of that magnitude with no intention of ever releasing it, I mean, do you think it's just possible that they're in a point legally where they cannot release the code, even no matter how much they want to? Definitely possible. I mean, it, 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 I don't know about the boot ROM, but you see this. I mean, I don't know, Laura, maybe, maybe with the boot ROM we would think this as well, but there is... Definitely in larger, I mean, as soon as you get like off of MCUs and into like real CPU, like host CPUs that are, you know, where you've got uh, hundreds of watts, there's plenty of low level software that is being provided by other vendors, the other IP vendors. And yeah, you, the, the, you, you can't always open it. So that is a very real problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say that's a possibility, but I mean, I, I think there are certainly a lot of motivations for why a company might not choose to open source something. And I, I think this goes to a lot of just general open source philosophy, I think, in general, which isn't necessarily restricted to the boot ROM. I mean, maybe they're concerned about what's actually in, in the code, either, you know, maybe legally, although I wouldn't want to speculate there. But I mean, sometimes it's just that they don't just don't want to risk it just because I mean, I think especially this is that if you've, if you've ever talked to a lawyer, their job is to, you know, try and get to minimize your risk. And it turns out in, in you know, in looking at that from a certain perspective, you know, don't, not opening the code does do, you know, possibly reduces risk in that manner. I mean, you know, certainly I'm not a lawyer and um, uh, what to do that. But I mean, I, I think you often find times that, you know, taking the conservative approach is it's what's recommended simply because you know it reduces the risk. Although as we've this, again as we've mentioned before, that's risk can reducing the risk can come up with other kinds of trade offs. So that's right. Yeah, and certainly I, there's so many people that that you know kind of claim to represent legal opinions among software engineers. Like, is this actually from a lawyer, or are you just is this what you might are, you, are, we, are we playing pretend lawyer right now? Um, yeah. And like, look, we've all done it. I played pretend lawyer, but. Uh, Jason, you got your hand up. I think maybe that, that then we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. Well, I was just going to ask then, since you mentioned the X five hundred nine parsing, is that going to be the next area you look for vulnerabilities? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have actually uh, looked at that um, a, a little bit, and I I, I think um, that's a pretty big uh, area to, to try and figure out. And I mean. Oh my God. I, I wanted to try and write an X509 fuzzer, but um, I, I don't quite have the time or, or expertise to be able to uh, try and do that. So, I hope NXP listened all the way to the end of the space. They're going to be <laughs> <laughs> someone in there is going to be no replay it at the end. It's like they, uh, yeah, it's like, that's right, Dave. She's coming for you next. <laughs> that's right. I, I I can only imagine the amount of shenanigans that you can get up to with X509 certificate parsing on the, every microcontroller in the world. Uh, it, cl clearly, clearly, Laura's plot to take over the world is succeeding. Oh, it's absolutely succeeding. It's absolutely succeeding. Um, all right. So uh, here, Evan, I'm going to allow you to speak. And then I think we I, I do want to be respectful. Uh, Laura's on the East Coast and I'll get late over there. So um, 
Evan, did you have a question for Laura? I want to build your own X509 parser. Um, there are a lot of good fuzzing corpus out there. And if you just shove every mutated X509 file out there, you might find something. Uh, Evan, could you hold that thought until uh, mid-December, please? The, this is, the winter solstice is <laughs> not going to come this early this year. Sorry, Brian, the cat's out of the bag. There you go. Uh, and did you have another question at all, or uh, as well? That's a, that's definitely a good suggestion um, for when we want to discover yet another vulnerability. Uh, we're going to run out, Laura. At some point, you're going to run out of of like blog titles. I, I mean, I, I have you know a couple of rejected blog titles out there. You know, I, I, I can certainly <laughs> back, but I mean, I, I would honestly prefer not to find any more vulnerabilities in terms of because it's really difficult to try and ship a product when we keep finding vulnerabilities. It, it is, and, and that's as good a note as any to end on. Laura, thank you very much. This is such impressive technical work. Uh, I, I mean, it was the, the the previous vulnerability was 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 remarkable. I thought you did just incredible work on this. It was uh, a lot of fun to be a part of. Of course, it's easy to say that now because we know we're not vulnerable, so I'm not sure. Um, but just terrific work here, and I think you know over and over again through this process you have been a model for how we want uh, folks to carry themselves with respect to security disposition and vulnerability and responsible disclosure and everything else. So uh, kudos to you. Uh, definitely inspiring to, to be your colleague. And it's, and thank you so much for joining us today for, to discuss it. Yeah, thanks for having me. And once again, thank you for Oxide for uh, supporting me in being able to uh, do this type of work and, you know, be, both being able to take it seriously and also support the creativity and occasionally uh, harebrained ideas we come up with. So, Absolutely. As Ben says, very much in scope. All right. Thanks so much, everyone. Um, hey, a quick plug for next week. We, uh, we know we, we're, we do an update. We're going to have the, the hardware team back. We're going to be doing Tales from the Bring Up Lab. Um, we are going to be doing uh, talking about how our uh, the rest of bring up of our EBT at the Gimlet sled, and then we're also going to be talking bring up of sidecar. So uh, should be a lot of fun, uh, and we want to get that get, get the hardware team around the campfire before we forget some of these traumatic stories. So uh, look forward to having folks next week. All right, take care, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, everyone.